Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Thomas Tailgate Party. I'm your host, Thomas Jackson. I uh, hope you enjoyed the first weekend of college football. Everybody had a fun and safe Labor Day long weekend. Uh, we sure had some really good games with North Carolina App State and FSU LSU and Utah, Florida. Already some playoff hopeful teams getting a loss on the record. So, um, yeah, that hurt yours truly's feelings when the Utes dropped their very first game in Gainesville. But I guess that's what you get for picking a Pac-12 team to go all the way. Um <laughs> But yeah, it was a really entertaining weekend of football and this upcoming week. We've got some more really good games. We've got NFL returning as well. Um, So I'm going to start off this episode by recapping everything that happened last weekend. Then we'll go into week two preview, do all of our normal segments. And then I'm going to give a little Fish Dicks review from the couple's concerts I saw here in Denver for anybody who might be interested in that at the very tail end. So sit back, enjoy, and we'll get started with week one right there. There's normally um, w- at least one pretty good game on the opening Thursday night of college football leading into Labor Day weekend every year. This year's was one of the best ones that I can remember with the revival of the backyard brawl. Uh, Pittsburgh defeated West Virginia 38-31. to um, We'll talk about this a little bit more later, but it was within that plus 7.5 that I promised. So cheers to us on that. 1-0 on the season. Let's make it 2-0 next week. Um, so this was a crazy back and forth game. West Virginia had the lead 31-24 in the fourth quarter. Pittsburgh stopped them or scored, not stopped them, scored twice in less than a minute with a pick six to seal the game. The crowd shot from that. The aftermath of that was absolutely berserk. And it's one of those moments you see every opening weekend that makes you realize it's just so good to be back with full stadiums. Um, The crowd was unbelievable all night. It was the largest in Pittsburgh Panther history. They sold out of beer in the third quarter from what I saw on Twitter. Um, And then there is this this tweet that I saw that was, you know, kind of really rang home about some of the larger um, things going on in college football about the conferences and all the changes that we've been faced with recently. It was from Jason Kirk of the Shutdown Fullcast, um, a college football podcast that is a little off the walls, but I would highly recommend to anybody out there. Uh, he quote tweeted Pitt football's tweet after the game. And it said, attendance, 70,622. Tonight is the largest crowd for any game in Pittsburgh sports history. And Jason said, people like it when when teams from the same area play each other. Like I said last week, West Virginia and Pittsburgh's campuses are only 70 miles apart. Something I did not realize they were so close. My northeast Appalachian geography is not as hot as I thought, I reckon. But... He said, people like it when teams from the same area play each other. Anyways, here's Maryland UCLA. And I'm sure most of y'all have seen the crowd um, or lack thereof from the UCLA game this past weekend. Um, But it's, you know, it's unfortunate that you're going to get a lot of those dud games from like the lesser than Big Ten teams playing UCLA or Washington instead of just embracing the regional rivalries that have existed for many, many decades and made college football into what it is today. But I digress on that. I won't go into a conference realignment rant. Um, But yeah, they have agreed to play this game a couple more. They have two more or three more years of home and home. 
uh, going back and forth between West Virginia and Pitt coming up. So that's really exciting. And then it takes a little break. And then at the end of this decade, it's revived for four more years. So that's really cool. Even if they're going to split these teams into totally nonsensical conferences, then at least we can get them playing in some out-of-conference matchups going forward. Penn State beat Purdue 35-31. to um, This game was just about equally as wild. Um, you know, Purdue, they had a huge crowd there in West Lafayette for the season opener on this Thursday night. And Penn State came back at the end of the game, drove all the way down the field, even though Sean Clifford had had a pretty bad game before that, and scored the game-winning touchdown with seven seconds left. There were multiple long pass plays on that drive and one right before halftime where the Purdue secondary just blatantly missed multiple tackles. That ended up costing them this ball game. Uh, Penn State looked like they were about ready to just mail it in before halftime with about 10 seconds left. Threw about a 10 or 15-yard pass and it looked like the Purdue defender was like on a JV squad in high school whiffing on this tackle and it led to Penn State rolling all the way down and getting one score they never should have had before halftime. So tough loss for the Boilermakers, much needed season opening win for the Nittany Lions to get their season going on the right foot, but um, I still wouldn't put too much stock into Penn State after the quarterback performance and kind of the fluky scores that they had at the end of both halves to knock off Purdue just barely. Fast forwarding to Saturday, um, we'll go kind of from the biggest games on down. Number two, Ohio State defeated number five, Notre Dame, 21 to 10. A lot of people thought that this was going to be a total drubbing, myself included, but I kind of came around the more I read and heard um, throughout the week about Notre Dame having a chance to at least be competitive in this game, which they certainly were. And, you know, they, they're the type of team last year that Ohio State would have lost to one of Notre Dame's problems. Probably their biggest problem over the past many, many years is that they've had a good physical team, you know, great, great lines and everything, but they haven't had the skill position players to keep up with the very top echelon teams like Ohio State or Alabama when they or Clemson when they match up with the other powerhouses. So Notre Dame was actually leading at halftime. Ohio State was kind of negligent of their running game and was passing it too much. And they finally came around in the second half, ran it a little bit more, um, and, and were able to knock off the Irish. So I think... Both teams probably feel okay going out of this game. I mean, beating the number five team in the country by multiple scores is nothing to be ashamed of at all. But, you know, everyone had heard about how powerful this Ohio State offense was. And for them to only put 21 up on the board, I think was surprising to most of us. However, with the physical style of play that Notre Dame has, you know, those those games last year's when Ohio State had a lot of trouble. See the Michigan game and the Oregon game where they got punched in the mouth and they just couldn't stop them at all. So I think the defense has improved. They have gotten more physical and that's the biggest thing. If the defense can just be okay, you know, or pretty good, then Ohio State's offense 
they'll grow and they'll learn. So Ohio State still controls their own destiny. Notre Dame, this isn't a loss that if they were to win out, you know, they can still be right in the playoff discussion. And I think that, you know, they they were probably happy with for how long they kept this game really, really close. Uh Probably the biggest upset of the weekend, even though in the point spread, it it wasn't so much, but a lot of people had a lot of questions about Florida leading into this year. They beat Utah 29-26 to in an absolutely awesome game. Um, like I said earlier, I was super high on the Utes. I feel like they were the better team. Still are on paper, but them going into the swamp at nighttime the first weekend of the year, it was a a tough spot for them, no doubt. And they had a chance to win this game at the very end, drove all the way down the field and cam rising through an interception when they were inside the five yard line. So that was a really tough loss for them. The biggest takeaway from this game is that Anthony Richardson, the Florida quarterback who was hurt for most of last year, but we saw little glimpses of what we thought could turn into brilliance. He really showed out. He's a big physical force, much like the likes of a Cam Newton or a Vince Young. He's super fast. He's just an absolute gamer. Not the most pure passer you've ever seen, but he's just he can make plays with his arm and his legs, and he's such a big physical force. He's going to be really hard to slow down if he gets on a good roll this season. So it's going to be a lot of fun fun to watch him. And he was one of those guys in the 30-1, to 40-1 to 1 odds Heisman range that we talked about that would be worth a little flyer, you know, if you wanted to take someone other than the few top dogs in the, in the Heisman odds. And if he has a few more big national performances like this, he's going to be right there at the top. So... Florida plays Kentucky next week. We'll talk about that later, but that should be a great game and see, be interesting to see if the Gators can can keep it rolling. Uh, Georgia, number three in the country, absolutely skull-dragged Oregon, who was nor- number 11. Um, this game ended at a tally of 49-3, to and it wasn't even that close. A lot of storylines leading into this game about Dan Lanning, the brand-new Oregon head coach, was hired from Georgia. Uh, He was their defensive coordinator last year on that magnificent team. And Bo Nix, the new starting quarterback at Georgia, obviously played at Auburn for his whole career. So Bo had a couple of interceptions in the first half and just, it was just bad. It was really bad. I mean, the, the guy had to just be having bad deja vu from having to play these guys every year before this. And Georgia, one of the big takeaways was that Oregon's defense has a lot of very talented guys on it. They're not a bad team, but they are just so far away from being in Georgia's class. Georgia, you might think like, oh, kind of typical Georgia, just have a couple great running backs and just totally outman them. But it was really their passing game. That shines. Stetson had a great game. Georgia has four tight ends that could start on any team in the country that are just giant physical beasts. And it was just way too much for the Pac-12 hopefuls in the Ducks. So, you know, while Utah, I mean, Florida obviously isn't as good as Georgia, but while Utah could probably look at this game and still feel like they have some a lot of positive growth 
to go in the future um, of this season, Oregon, it's going to be hard to bounce back from this one. And while they'll still have a probably pretty good season, um, this that that's just a demoralizing way to get started off and definitely a long, long flight home um, from Atlanta. Next, Arkansas, number 23, beat number 19, Cincinnati, 31 to 24. Uh, this game was big for the Hogs just to keep it rolling from last year. The last year was the first year in so long that they had some encouraging wins and ended on a positive note. That program was just down in the dumps for way too many years. And Cincinnati, while they did lose a lot, they've established themselves as a tough program for enough years now to where even though they lost Ritter and a couple of their star cornerbacks, they still have a lot of talent on that team. So Arkansas was able to pull it off. KJ Jefferson had a really good game. They're going to prove to be a force in the SEC. You know, I mean, they have, of course, everyone in the SEC West has one of the hardest schedules in the country. But um, yeah, I mean, Cincinnati, they, they, they put up a good fight. That's a tough spot. Fayetteville is a hard place to play on a hot day like that. So I think both of those teams will do really well this season going forward as well. Uh, the most entertaining track meet scoring-wise game of the weekend was North Carolina App State. App came out of the gates hot, and they had the lead for most of the first half. North Carolina bounced back, scored a couple touchdowns before halftime, and then pretty much stomped App for the whole third quarter. Uh, going into that, App was down three scores and scored 40 points in the fourth quarter to still ultimately lose but make for one hell of an entertaining ending. They scored with about a minute left and went for two for the kill shot and should have had should have had it. The guy was running back, flanked out to the right side of the end zone and he couldn't have been more wide open, and it was one of the situations where he was just a little too wide open, and the quarterback, I think he threw the ball where it where it should have been, but the running back, he just hesitated for half a second and tried to catch it, falling back over his head, and he didn't get it. It was just absolutely, absolutely heartbreaking. Then they obviously do an onside kick, which North Carolina returns for a touchdown. You don't see that very often, uh, but the UNC kick return team leveled a bunch of App State guys, and they took it to the house, which ended up being a dumb move because then they had to kick it right back off to App with only half, half a minute left on the clock or so. App returned the kickoff past the 50. If he would have beat one man, he could have made it all the way to the end zone right there. They drive down the field, get a touchdown, and once again, just barely missed the two-point conversion. The quarterback rolled out and kept him himself and got tackled at the one-yard line. So a heartbreaking loss for App State. Both offenses looked amazing, obviously, with the final score of 63-61. to That's more of a basketball score than a football score. But, um, yeah, the UNC defense under Gene Chiswick has a long way to go, and it makes me feel lucky that I didn't pick them to win their division in the ACC because I was between them and Miami for me, and Miami, who played nobody, did look really good this weekend. But, good Lord, if you're giving up, 61 to App State, the week after you give up 24 to FAMU, that's uh, 
there's a lot of things to sort out there on the defensive unit in Chapel Hill. A couple more close calls um, for bigger Power 5 or ranked teams. Houston, who was number 24, uh, beat uh, UTSA 37-35 to in three overtimes. That was one of the games where you would expect Houston to win pretty easy. The spread was only four points. So UTS, UTSA got the cover, um, but... I mean, UTSA had a great, great squad last year, but Houston might have some things to think about after that one as well. That was played at UTSA, or at least in uh, San Antonio in the Alamo Dome. Uh, It had a really good crowd there. And then Iowa, (laughs) the sicko game of the week, beat South South Dakota State 7-3. No, the seven points didn't come from a touchdown. It was a field goal and then two safeties that led them to win. One of the most horrific offensive performances you'll ever see. I didn't even, I wasn't even aware of this game going on being so close until I saw someone on Twitter post that the game was 5-3 and then Iowa was able to get another safety to level out the score to an even seven. Um, Their offensive coordinator is Brian Ferentz, who is the son of the head coach, Kirk. And yeah, there might need to be some changes there. It's it's the same old, same old with Iowa. Their offense has always just been horrific. Their defense has always been really good. And if they could just get a serviceable offense, not even anything explosive, then they could have a chance to compete in the Big Ten West. But for now, it looks like that won't be the case yet again. On Sunday night, another game of the weekend, Florida State defeated LSU in New Orleans 24-23. to um, This game was another just completely bizarre ending LSU uh, featuring Jaden Daniels, the first-time starter uh, at quarterback for LSU, transfer from Arizona State. Um, He did not have a good game at all. Uh, Kayshawn Butte, their star wide receiver, was only got two catches, I believe, in the whole game, and he showed, I believe, some of his frustration on Instagram after deleting all of his LSU-related content right after this game went down. LSU had two kicks blocked, a field goal and a PAT to end the game, and two punts that were muffed and recovered by Florida State. So they have some serious special teams and quarterback things to sort out. Uh, They muffed a punt with a couple minutes left where Florida State was able to recover inside the 10-yard line. And they it looked like FSU was going to be able to score, go up two touchdowns, and put an end to it. They got to the one-yard line on third and goal on the one, and they decided to run a halfback toss for whatever stupid reason. The toss was messed up. LSU recovered, recovered the ball on the one-yard line with about a minute left, drove all the way down the field, and then scored a touchdown after a controversial... <laughs> Call on their players going out of bounds with one second left, which to me looked like the clock should have ran off, but they gave them one more play and they were able to score the touchdown to make it 23 to 24. You think, okay, extra point, let's go to overtime, keep this madness rolling. Well, the extra point was blocked and just absolute madness in the Superdome. Brian Kelly 
loses his first game in Baton Rouge, unsurprisingly blaming the players, popping off on the media after the game. So a very hard homecoming for him and a start to LSU's tenure. They might have an interesting quarterback battle that stretches on into the season. Daniels was announced as the starter the day of the game, I believe, or if not, then that weekend. And uh, like I said in the season preview, they have Nussmeyer, uh, the highly touted quarterback recruit that is waiting behind him. So we'll see how that goes. But um, yeah, that's that's it's not going to fly in the SEC. And good for Florida State. It's a much needed victory for them after so many years of having heartbreaking losses and getting upset and everything. So hopefully Norvell can keep keep that rolling in Tallahassee for the Seminoles. But yeah, LSU. They've got some things to sort out and maybe on and off the field after seeing some of their reactions from from the star players. And lastly, to cap off week one, Clemson beat Georgia Tech 41 to 10. GT was actually able to keep this game pretty close. Uh, DJ did not have a very good game, but he kind of turned it on in the second half to pull the Tigers away from it being too competitive of a game too late. Although their new five-star freshman quarterback Cade Klubnik came in for the final drive of the game with four minutes left maybe and yes it was Georgia Tech's whatever was left of their defense they were gassed dejected after the game was clearly over but he led the Tigers offense down the field in a very efficient fashion looked really really sharp and it'll be interesting to see if DJ uh, continues to struggle like he did last year going forward when they get to ACC play if Klubnik gets some more uh, or some some of his first meaningful game time. Uh, their first big game is not until week four against Wake Forest, who their quarterback Sam Hartman just announced that he was coming back uh, for the season. He had some undisclosed medical issues that a few weeks ago said he might not be playing at all this year. Wake Forest had one of the best offenses in the country last season, so it's huge for them that he'll be coming back to play ball this year. I'm glad he's worked out whatever it was that he needed to work out, and hopefully he will stay healthy going forward because that Demon Deacon offense was really entertaining to watch. They play at Vandy this week, and then they'll have a couple weeks to ramp up before the big Clemson game in late September. All right, we're moving on to the week two preview now. Um, We get started off on Thursday night with some NFL football, Bills-Rams. We are fully all the way back this weekend, full NFL slate on Sunday, and then Broncos and Russell Wilson returning to Seattle on Monday night for his first game since he got traded over to Denver. Let's ride. And uh, yeah, it feels good to be all the way back, finally. Um On Friday night, we have some college action with Louisville at Central Florida. Louisville uh, was kind of sneakily supposed to be on the up and up after some pretty disappointing seasons under Scott Satterfield. We'll talk about him more in a little bit on our segments list. Um, But yeah, they lost to Syracuse last week, 31-7. So UCF is now about a touchdown favorite in that game in the bounce house on Friday night. For Saturday, we'll start off with college game day in Austin. Number one, Alabama travels to Texas and is a 20-point favorite over the Longhorns. This game is at 11 a.m. Thoughts and prayers to all my buddies who will be there. I know I've got a few of you that'll 
be at the game in person. Um, I heard 96 degrees at kickoff. It's going to be a high of 65 here in Denver, Colorado on Saturday. So I'll be thinking about y'all when I have a quarter zip on at noon. Um, But uh, yeah, this is the first game. We've been waiting for this one for a long time. At least these two fan bases have. This is the first time that they've played since the... Uh, well, technically 2010 Rose Bowl of the 2000 national championship from the 2009 season when Alabama defeated the Longhorns for Nick Saban's first BCS title at Alabama. Of course, this is the infamous, if only Colt wouldn't have gotten hurt game. Uh, Colt McCoy got hit, uh, you know, in I guess strange fashion. It didn't even look that strange. It was strange that he got hurt off of the play on the fifth play of the game after a Marcel Darius hit to the shoulder. He said that his shoulder uh, was numb and it didn't look anything bad. Everybody, I was there in the stands with my dad and everybody was quite confused when we noticed the next play. Wait, why isn't he in the game? And he never returned. Uh, Garrett, Garrett Gilbert from Texas ended up finishing out the game, who played really well, staged a really good comeback um, in the second quarter after Bama had a huge lead at halftime. But anyway, since then, Bama has gone on the most impressive run that the sport has ever seen, and Texas has been on really anything but. They have been struggling deeply. They have been through several coaching changes. And now a former Alabama assistant, Steve Sarkeesian, is trying to get them back to where they were. So, obviously, Sark was Alabama's offensive coordinator as soon as the 2020 season when he orchestrated one of, if not the best, offenses of all time. Texas got them. They struggled mightily last year. But this year, they've got some more recruits in the system. They have a really talented offense. The question is more so on the defensive side of the ball. Um, But Quinn Ewers, the five-star quarterback from Texas who committed to Ohio State, uh, sat the whole year last year for the Buckeyes and then transferred to Texas, is getting his second start this weekend. He struggled a little bit in their season opener against Law Monroe, but Texas won that one handily 52-10. to Um, So this is his first real test, and it's a tough first real test. Um, Some more storylines just about the crossover between the two programs, Uh, in addition to Steve Sarkeesian being the new Texas head coach from the Alabama staff. There were also a couple of pretty high-profile Alabama players who transferred to Texas this offseason. Those are wide receiver Ajay Hall and tight end Jalil Billingsley. Both uh, very highly touted recruits coming into Alabama. Both should have had fantastic careers. Uh, Billingsley played a lot more than Hall did, but both had major on and off the field issues. Um, Jalil Billingsley was infamous in Tuscaloosa for his drops and ill-timed mistakes at big points in critical games. And Hall... Uh, was kind of known for tweeting more than catching footballs. So both of them decided to transfer with uh, to Sark over the offseason. They both carried their off-the-field struggles to Austin with them as uh, both got in trouble with the law over the offseason. Neither of them played last week. Billingsley is still suspended for this upcoming Alabama game, although Hall will be available to play whether he will or not. I guess we'll see. 
Um, so that'll be interesting if he gets in the game, probably a lot of John back and forth and physicality because of the manner in which he left the program, but we'll have to wait and see if he even gets playing time because after the on the field performance that we've all seen and his off the field struggles, they've got to have better options. (laughs) So the Texas offense is really good, led by their one receiver who will, will be playing, Xavier Worthy. He is an absolute stud. Bijan Robinson, the Heisman candidate running back, is probably the best running back in the country. And Quinn Ewers, the highly touted five-star transfer from Ohio State. So they have a lot of star power um, on the offensive side of the ball. The question is, are they going to be able to score enough to keep up with the Crimson Tide uh, for four quarters? Texas's defense had some serious problems last year, and with this being their first real test, we're going to see how far they've come over the offseason. My prediction for the game, um, it wouldn't surprise me to see Texas jump out to an early lead, 7-0, 10-3, something like that. I'm sure that they're going to have some trickeration, uh, ready to go up their sleeve, try to come out the gates really hot, keep the crowd in it for as long as they can. I just don't think they have the horses to run with Alabama for four whole quarters. So I think eventually Alabama will pull away by halftime or in the third quarter, extend that lead deep into the game, and cover that 20-point spread. But I've been waiting for this game for a long time. Um, We're going to play again in Tuscaloosa next season, and then every so often once Texas joins the SEC here sooner rather than later. So that is College Game Day, 11 a.m. Central kickoff in Austin. Next, we've got number 24, Tennessee, at number 17, Pittsburgh. Tennessee is a a six-and-a-half-point favorite. This is at 2.30 in the afternoon. Uh, This is going to be a really interesting matchup because it's a rematch from last year of a really fun competitive game in Knoxville where Pittsburgh uh, won a bit of a shootout there. This was when we were first seeing Tennessee's explosive offense, so they hadn't really turned into uh, what they would eventually become last year, but it's the first time we got to see uh, Hendon Hooker really flex his muscles a little bit. So this year, it's going to be more about the Tennessee run defense and how well they can stop the Pittsburgh rushing attack. Pittsburgh looks a little more like old school Pittsburgh this year without their passing attack. Uh, Their number one weapons in the QB and wide receiver slots from last season. So they're going to try to run the ball a little bit more, get really physical with Tennessee. But Tennessee's run defense is supposed to be pretty solid this year. So I think whoever wins that battle will have a good good chance to uh, to win the whole game. Tennessee's, their, their passing offense is a little bit more established than Pitt's is. Um, I trust them a little bit more with the continuity that they have coming back from last season. Uh, but we'll have to wait and see. It'll probably be decided about who's able to come forth in that Tennessee run defense versus Pittsburgh run attack. So that'll be interesting. Interesting to see if Slovis can really stretch the field out to help their running game a little bit. I think Tennessee wins this one in a close one, but I believe Pittsburgh will be able to get the cover there um, laying about a touchdown or catching about a touchdown. Rather, we have another ranked matchup. Uh, Baylor travels to BYU. Um, BYU is a three and a half point favorite. 
That's at 9.15 p.m. Uh, kind of a random out-of-conference matchup here, but I think it should be a great game, a really good nightcap after all the other action has concluded. Uh, both of these teams have pretty high hopes for this season, but especially Baylor. I kind of like Baylor to win that one on the road, but I don't expect it to come easy at all there in Provo. Number 20, Kentucky, plays at number 12, Florida. Florida's a four-and-a-half-point favorite. This is at 6 p.m. Central in the Swamp. I'm a little suspect of Kentucky this year. I know they looked good in week one, but that was against Miami of Ohio. They lost a good bit from last season, and I think people are expecting this to be the Kentucky from last season, but I don't know about that. However, I would normally be encouraged to lay the four and a half with Florida here at home at night with their histories of success against Kentucky. Um, but coming off of that big of a win, I don't know how long they were celebrating after the fact. I don't know how much gas they had in the tank and when they were really able to get back up to full speed after that physical of a ball game against the Utah Utes. So I don't know. It's probably a stay away for me. I think Florida will win after how see, seeing how good they were last year against a team that I still really respect. Um, but these games over the past few years have always been quite competitive. So it'll it'll be fascinating to see if Richardson can put on another big time performance there in the prime time because they might need it to to get past the Wildcats. Getting into some smaller matchups for the weekend. Uh, the Cyhawk game, not nearly as highly touted as it was last year when both of these teams were coming in ranked with conference aspirations in their sights. Uh, but Iowa is a three and a half point favorite. Do you think Iowa can score three and a half points? If not, take the points, Cyclones, although Iowa State has not won this matchup since 2014. So part of me believes that they'll find some disgusting way to give this game up to the Hawkeyes. Next, we have Appalachian State playing at number six, Texas A&M. The Aggies are an 18-point favorite. This is at 2.30 in the afternoon Central Time. Um, App State, of course, we talked about earlier, their heartbreaking loss from last weekend. I have similar questions that I did with Florida. How much of their gas in the tank was used? I know it's only week one, and these are you know young athletic college kids, but emotionally, too, that type of a game just takes a long time to get over, especially when you're the... Not that they were much of a betting underdog, but you know that you know, that's how the narrative was when they're playing a big school like UNC in their own state. So I hope they can bounce back quick, keep their head up because A&M started super slow in their matchup. And I have no reason to believe that App State can't give them another good battle if they come out and play their A game. So that'll be something to keep their eye on. Interesting that A&M is favored uh, by 18 playing App State at home, and Alabama is favored by 20 playing Texas on the road. Just something I noticed. Uh, we will move on to the segments now. We start with the hot seat of the week, presented by Lee Corso with none other than Scott Frost. Uh, Nebraska was struggling with North Dakota State in the fourth quarter. When I looked up at the TV, there were maybe a dozen minutes left in the ball game, and Nebraska was only up by seven, and I thought, oh, God, here we go again. But they did pull away at the end. They have Georgia Southern next before their season really ramps up when Oklahoma comes to town. Uh, so Scott Frost still number one in this for me. 
Um, I've got Herm Edwards next at Arizona State. They had a cupcake week one, but they play at Oklahoma State on Saturday night, which I don't think will be much of a contest because even though the Cowboys defense didn't look good at all to some of my Auburn friends delight with Derek Mason having the reins there now, I think Oklahoma State will be able to handle the Sun Devils quite easily there in Stillwater. Next, we got Jeff Collins. Um, the whole nation was able to see his interesting use or lack thereof, <laughs> depending on what quarter it was of his timeouts. In the second ha- or the second quarter, he refused to use them when it seemed pretty obvious to try to do so before the half. And then he used, I think, two of the three, maybe three of the three timeouts in the third quarter when Georgia Tech was just hanging on for dear life. So poor Jeff Collins losing in his home city by 31 to Clemson. Not too much to be ashamed of, but not the, not the note they wanted to get their season started on. Next, I've got our guy Brian Harson. Auburn looks solid in their season opener against Mercer. They have another cupcake this week before the things get really interesting with Penn State coming to town week three, so we'll put him on hold as well. Scott Satterfield, the head coach of Louisville, he was on our list basically all of last season, but got the Cardinals to do just good enough to stick around for another season. However, getting slapped 31 to 7 by Syracuse when you're a four-point favorite is no way to start off the year when you're already on the hot seat they play at UCF Friday night like I said six-point underdogs um things could get bad quick for Louisville they were supposed to bounce back this year returning quarterback Malik Cunningham pretty athletic dude but only putting up seven at the Qs that's not going to get it done if they lose Friday night he's going to be moving way up our list Next, Syracuse's coach, Dino Babers. Uh, it's kind of a situation like Georgia Tech where he's going to need a few more of these type underdog wins this year to save his job. He's been there for a while. It seems stale. I don't think it's going to last after this season. However, uh, beating a team by 24 points when you're an underdog to start the season off, you know that's, that's why he's at the bottom of our list this week. And at the very bottom, Brian Kelly. <laughs> I'm not saying it, but people people have been talking about it. I don't know. People are talking about it, so we'll see. Interesting uh, situation there in Baton Rouge. Who's not back of the week presented by Texas? Uh, the entire Pac-12, two of their three playoff hopeful teams lost to SEC opponents. USC seems to probably be their one and only hope. I believe if Utah goes undefeated through the rest of the year they'll have a pretty good argument considering it was a very close loss the last minute on the road and especially if florida can keep doing well this season florida doesn't even have to be you know in the sec championship game but if they can win nine games whatever then a week one loss at the on the road at florida is nothing you know it's not really a that bad of a blemish on your resume so utah you know I think they can still fight their way into it if they get a little help from their friends around the country. Oregon, no chance. USC, we'll see. But uh, not where the Pac-12 wanted to be after the first weekend with Utah going down. Still searching for their first playoff appearance since the inaugural 2014 uh, Oregon team that made it to the 14 playoff. What I'll be watching, the three games in every time slot of the day this Saturday... In the morning, obviously tuned in to Bama at Texas. That's at 11 a.m. Central at 2.30 in the afternoon. We have Tennessee at Pitt. It's going to be a really interesting one. And at nighttime, 
Kentucky at Florida. Still a lot to learn about all of these teams. The Pac-12 after dark game of the week is, I already mentioned, Baylor at BYU. Should be a really good one kicking off not until 9.15 p.m. And our best bet for the week is still to be determined. I will probably tweet that out on Thursday or Friday. Last week, the West Virginia Mountaineers covered the plus seven and a half for us. So we got started the right way. Exactly what we wanted to do. Happy with that. Wish they could have gotten the outright win like they really should have being up as a touchdown in the fourth quarter than giving up 14 unanswered in the game. But all we needed was a touchdown and a hook and they only lost by a touchdown. So good job on that. That's all I got for the week one preview and or week one recap and the week two preview. Sorry, the week one recap was a little quicker than I would have liked. I'm exhausted after a busy week and a super long weekend. So doing my best with the time and resources that I have here. That's it for the college football. I'm going to review a couple of the nights from Fish Dicks in Denver that I attended coming up. So for those of you who don't care, talk to you next week. And here we go for the Fish Curious crowd. So they played uh, at Dick's Sporting Goods Park, the soccer stadium here in Denver, for the 11th time. I can't remember with COVID. them not playing in 2020, but something like that. Um, and f- normally it's Friday through Sunday of this Labor Day weekend. So for me, with college football returning and my favorite band coming in town, it is pure bliss the entire time. Uh, this weekend, I had to leave town for a couple of days to see my buddy Steve. Congrats to him and Sydney on the soon-to-be marriage. Had a wonderful time in New Orleans, but I was able to squeeze in a night of fish on the front and back end of that trip. So I went on Thursday and Sunday night. Missed out on Friday and Saturday when I was in New Orleans. Thursday was my very first solo show, but I made friends before too long, had a perfect spot on the floor right in front of the soundboard. Shout out to Megan from Golden and her friends that took me in with their crew, had a great time dancing with them during the first set. Um, They came out of the gate pretty hot with sand and disease. After that, it was a pretty typical first set and just kind of first night in general. Uh, what you would expect after they haven't played in two or three weeks, kind of feeling it out, doing some nice jams, but nothing too deep or exploratory. Axilla 2 was a definite highlight for me in the middle of the first set. Uh, they opened the second set with Possum, which is one of my favorite songs to see lives for sure. Um, then the show really opened up with Ruby Waves. That was the first jam that really got everyone's attention, got everybody pretty fired up. After that, they played Don't Doubt Me, which was one of the SoFi Power Ranger songs from the last Halloween show, which I wasn't really familiar with. Um, Wasn't too crazy about the song itself, but the jam got really good really quick. And then that went into The Howling, which was a fun, funky one from that same album, into Piper, which had a pretty awesome raging jam per usual. And then we got a hood encore which was always awesome at Dick's with all of the glow sticks and confetti and everything. So overall, a good show. Uh, Nothing super amazing to ride home about, but kind of what you expect on the first night, especially of a four-night run. My first solo show, and I did pretty good, so that was kind of nice to get that behind me and everything. 
On Sunday, when I got back, I was quite exhausted after a night of fish and two nights in New Orleans, but I made it anyway. Uh, Super, super first set with basically all hits and a couple of my favorite 3.0 songs. I was sitting kind of on page side, back corner in the stands for this one, just kind of chilling in the back. And really enjoyed that because even though you were pretty far away away from the stage, you had a a secondary speaker right in front of you. So the sound was still pretty good for how far away you were. Um, Some decent space back there as well. It wasn't too packed in or anything. I had some nice room to move around. It's always a great show when you get a first tube opener. Uh, That's one of my favorite ones for them to come out of the gate with. After that, Jen, Undermine, Driffa, You're Sleeping, Haley's Comet, Everything's Right, Fluffhead. Uh, it was just a very fun first set full of a lot of great hits. Haley's, or not Haley, uh, Driffa, You're Sleeping, and Everything's Right are two of my favorite 3.0 songs. Um, so I really enjoyed getting those as well as all of the other ones. Set Your Soul Free uh, opened up the second set. And we all kind of felt like we were due for that after the set list from the last couple of nights, but it instantly turned into the best jam of the night pretty quickly. That went into Fuego, which the jam was even better than a couple songs later. Cross-Eyed and Painless was the best jam from either of the nights I went to. It got everybody really fired up, as the song itself always does, but then the jam itself was really spectacular, so I'd advise going and listening to especially that in Fuego. I really enjoyed those. Then that went into David Bowie, which never fails to make my neck sore for me aggressively banging my head there uh, during the peaks of that. It was really awesome. That went into Loving Cup, which had everybody singing. It was so much fun. And then after that, things got really interesting. (laughs) That was the end of the second set. I noticed normally, I believe their curfew is midnight. Um, They normally end these shows from about 1130 to 1145. And I noticed on my watch after they finished um, the second set closer in Loving Cup that it was only like 1108. And I was like, okay, they've got some... They've got some time. They're probably going to play, you know, at least a couple, two or three, maybe a really good long one um, to end out this run. And sure enough, they came out with Divided Sky. And instantly I thought, hmm, there always is the speculation of the spelled set or whatever, spelled Encore at Dick's. And so I was like, it'll be interesting to see if they go into a vowel song after this, like dicks, maybe that's what they're doing. Divided Sky was awesome. I was really hoping to hear that one this weekend. And then they go into Iculus. And instantly, I am just shocked that I would have ever got to hear that song live. And then I realize, oh, D-I, they're going to spell out dicks. This is awesome. We have three more songs after this. And that one was dedicated to their stage manager who had been working for them since 1996. And this was his last night on his last tour. So I don't know if it was a request or something. You know, they knew it was a favorite song of his or whatever. But they had only played that twice since 2013 or once since 2013 and only 30 times in their entire history. According to Fish.net, they have played 1,939 live concerts, and Iculus has only been played at 30 of them. Uh, only once. The fir- This was the first time since 2019, the second time since 2013, and the seventh time 
since 1995. So definitely feel very lucky for that. It was awesome. I was geeking out the whole time. Couldn't believe it, still can't. Um, and then they went into Character Zero. Okay, D-I-C. Yeah, they're doing dicks on core. Character Zero was always fun. Fun as always. And then it ended. And I was like, what the... F-? <laughs> Everybody at that point had caught on. Like, I could just hear people like clamoring in the ca- crowd behind me, especially during Zero, saying, oh, like, D-I-C, they're going to do dicks. And uh, I don't know if... I have a hard time believing they ran out of time because it ended like a few minutes after 1130 and they've always played uh, past that. No big deal. Um, I don't know if something happened, malfunctioned on stage, if Trey just got too tired, like what happened. But I have a hard time believing that they would like set that up like that uh, and not realize it and not go all the way. So I don't really know. But everyone is saying we got just the tip of the dicks. So... (laughs) There is that. But overall, a really fun weekend. Um, I've been thankful to get some sleep ever since then. It was a really great crowd the two nights that I was at Dick's in the past. Uh, me and my compadres have had some issues with some chompers, but everybody around me on the floor and in the stands was really fun and chill, and I didn't have any issues with people blabbing their ass off all weekend. So that was really, really great. Big for me to be back and fishing. I can't wait to have some of y'all out here. Uh, For the next shows, if you're listening and thinking about scheduling your bachelor party or wedding on Labor Day weekend of 2023, don't. And uh, yeah, it's just really nice to be able to get back to my apartment less than 30 minutes from when they play the final note. Almost doesn't feel right being able to do so because I'm still just so wired and amped up after the concert than just to be in the silence of my living room uh, less than a a half hour uh, from when they they were playing music. Almost feels like I'm cheating or something, but... Great weekend all together. Uh, thanks to Fish. Thanks to everybody for listening. Congrats to Steve and Sydney. And we'll be back next week for our week two recap and week three preview. Enjoy the games, everybody. Bye-bye.